case file number 1.09. That's a nice internet you have there. Part 1. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subject of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. So have you ever been hit by ransomware? No, actually. They, when I worked for the college uh, back in Maryland, mm-hmm. uh, there was a ransomware scare, I think. Like some one of the professors got it on the laptop or something like that. But thankfully, their laptop was not connected to the college network. And, uh, yeah, they, they lost a bunch of data, but then, like, you know, jumped to uh, all of our other stuff. Yeah, well, one computer use, losing a lot of data is a very different thing than a network losing a lot of data. Yeah, yeah. Today's episode is about ransomware, or at least the, it's the start of, of the whole story of ransomware. But before we get into the ransomware, do you remember ever hearing about the Lindbergh baby? Vaguely, isn't that isn't the baby like vanish? He got kidnapped. Actually. Oh, got kidnapped so, okay. by Amelia Earhart. <laughs> <laughs> so Charles Lindbergh was the first person to fly across the Atlantic in the spirit of St. Louis, hanging in the uh, currently hanging in the uh, Air and Space Museum, the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in D.C. One of my favorite pictures I have is actually when they had the spirit of St. Louis and Sputnik and X one and Spaceship One, the private X-Prize winner, all in one shot. Oh, that's cool. And the thing that actually surprised me about those is, is that the three craft that held humans were all almost exactly the same size. <laughs> really? Yeah, it's just it, like they did very different things. The first one flew across the Atlantic. The second one was the first plane to deliberately break the sound barrier. And the third one was the first um, uh, basically airplane or airplane system to break the atmosphere. But I digress to my digression. Uh, <laughs> so Charles Lindbergh's baby, uh, um, him and his wife, his, their baby was kidnapped in 1932 hmm. and held for ransom. Um, ransom Kidnappings for ransom were a lot more common back then. Right. And that was about the beginning of the FBI. And one of the things that the early FBI is credited with is putting a big stop to kidnappings for ransom. In fact, today, kidnappings happen, but the vast majority of them are actually by parents and like custody disputes and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. It doesn't seem like a major, like definitely a major issue in like other countries. Um, yes. I know like you say, like Mexico City, crazy, crazy high kidnap. Um, when I flew to Costa Rica, I had a layover in Panama. And in fact, they have a bunch of signs and like when you want to leave the airport, you just kind of go look, go look around. Mm-hmm. They're like, do not leave the airport premise and just get into a random taxi. Because <laughs> you're probably going to get kidnapped. And like the the, um, the taxi drivers that come in, if you get in the taxi when they're leaving, they have to stop and show a security guard like their ID and their credentials and everything. Yeah, I, I know a friend of mine uh, who had family in, I believe, Colombia. 
I know that 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 um, the freedom fighters, whatever you, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, as they yeah. say. Um, did kidnappings to uh, that was part of how they raised money. Yeah. Um, but so it's not a solved problem everywhere. But in America, kidnappings for money are pretty rare. The reason they're pretty rare is that the FBI made it their business to crack down on them. This was maybe altruism, but probably a little bit more of Herbert Hoover's media savvy um, and knowing that solving or um, and impacting kidnappings would probably get him in the papers more, right. um, <laughs> which was known to be one of his vices. Anyway, so um, this is the case where the FBI actually got jurisdiction over pretty much all kidnappings because it was interstate. It was assumed to be interstate. Right, right. And the big important thing that started to happen are in the 30s, and this was the one that touched them all off, is that while they used to track bill serial numbers um, for the ransom, mm. this was the first case where they kind of had the pull to centralize that all and have everybody report um, or the bills that were used with the, in the serial numbers that were captured mm, okay. um, uh, to one place yeah. instead of it being, you know, the Bureau of Investigation, which was the FBI's former name and the, the state police in New York state and the local police, all that stuff. They made the effort, they made the organizational effort to have it go into one place. Right, right. And so you know, the, the reason for this digression is that if you can stop payment if you basically make a payment the payment the path to the perpetrator you stop ransom mm -hmm. and that ends up being the most important part about ransomware of any kind on the internet mm, okay if you can't get paid well if you can't get paid not arrested <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> then a ransomware doesn't really happen right yeah and there were lots of ways of getting paid. Um, some of them that we're seeing are, you know, toll numbers, call it a, a toll number, a number with, with a charge attached or a, mm. a text to a place with the same kind of thing. Okay. Um, gift cards or prepaid debit cards. Um, right. These are actually, calling cards and prepaid debit cards are even used today for, um, various scam paying off various scams yeah i was gonna say like i've heard it used in a lot of scams like when they brand mail literally and stuff like that in fact i even knew someone who saw me just recently like they had a co-worker or like someone they had hired who got um hit by one of those scams and had bought like a bunch of gift cards thinking that their boss had ordered it because they got um they got a phishing email and scratch off the back and tell me the code yep yeah exactly and then they because like their, their boss was flying at the time, so they had no, um, you know, cell service. So it just kind of, it, it was lucky for the scammers that all of this coincided because then when they touched down, contacted the employee, and the employee was like, "Don't worry, I got you all those gift cards." They were like, "Wait, do what now?" <laughs> it shows that money can flow that way, and when it does, there's basically nothing you can do to track down the perpetrator. Yeah, yeah. So there's actually two major classes of ransomware: crypto ransomware and lockware. Okay. Crypto ransomware encrypts your stuff. And Lockware locks up your machine. Uh, where you can't even boot or just locks you out of like the login. Um, there's, there are a few forms of this, actually. Mm -hmm. Probably one of the last ones we get to had a big splash screen that basically didn't let you click on anything. 
Nice. You got into your Windows got into the interface and everything, but it had a a, a nastily persistent lock screen. Yeah, uh, I totally haven't done that to people at all in my <laughs> work environment. <laughs> so, one of the first pieces of well, the first piece of ransomware, well, that we know of, which probably means it's the first piece of ransomware, um, was actually a piece of crypto ransomware called the. It's usually referred to as AIDS info disk. Sometimes. Um, known as the PC cyborg virus. Okay, never heard of it. Yeah, well, it was detected back in 1989. Oh, that works <laughs> Yeah, so this was back in the days where systems ran on DOS and Windows 3.1, and, or maybe even 3.1.1. Hmm. Uh, and uh, so it actually infected autoexec.bat. Uh, it would put <laughs> a little piece of batch file code that would detract the number of boots you did, and after it reached a certain limit, usually about 90, it started hiding the directories and encrypting file names. Nice. What, what encryption algorithm was it using? I couldn't find any reference to it, but at this stage, knowing some of the, knowing some of the stuff that, that about that they, he relied on a symmetric algorithm, mm -hmm. I'm going to bet you it was a homegrown um, encryption. He violated one of the principles uh, that, that, Schneider uh, put out um, in applied cryptography, which is never invent your own crypto. Right. But he can be forgiven. That book wouldn't come out <laughs> for another six years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is the new big red book. Um, so the ransom was to send $189 to a post office box in Panama. <laughs> okay. Uh, infected folks in the UK, actually a fairly small distribution list of, of PC enthusiasts. Mm. Uh, and by distribution list, I mean a actual physical mail distribution list, because this was distributed on floppies. Yeah, I was going to say, how did this yep. get onto the systems? But yeah, I guess it makes sense. Yeah, well, there there was there was boot sector malware at um, around that time. Mm. Um, some of the very er, uh, the earliest real um, destructive malware were things like things that would overwrite your boot sector and stuff like that. Right. There wasn't a ransom component, but they would make your computer unusable. Mm. Uh, back in the days of of, of uh, viruses for annoyance instead of viruses for profit. Yeah, we did we did a bunch of that. And uh, in fact, when I was on the cyber team um, college, and then when I like, helped just, like, coach it for a while, uh, that, was, that was a common attack is that like, the red team would break into your systems. And if they got in enough, they would just do annoying things. And one was uh, they would replace your bootloader with neon cat. You just have a, uh, a toaster pastry kitty like flying across your screen, and not be able to do it anymore. I do remember that. Didn't Mouse Five have a sports car wrapped in a neon cat thing? I that that sounds like that. probably a thing. Yeah, I actually did that to my boss. Um, not wrapped his car, but replaced okay. his bootloader with a neon cat. Hilarious. Um, so they caught the guy. Uh, it was a biologist, Dr. Joseph Pop, uh, in the UK. Um, and really? he it was said, the yeah, doctor, damn, yeah. okay. Oh, yeah, no, he was a bi he was a biologist, not a medical doctor, but yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but um, still, like... he was actually involved in AIDS research. Um, oh, that's where it gets its name. Uh, yes, well, okay. and that yeah, that's where it gets its name. Um, but it had one of the worst U uh, ULAs I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> If you install this on a microcomputer under the terms of the license, you agree to pay PC Cyborg Cor Corporation in full for the cost of the leasing of these programs. In case you breach the license agreement, the PC reserves the right to take legal action uh, 
necessary to recover outstanding debts payable to BC Cyborg corporations and use program mechanisms to ensure the termination of your use. So he, he put mel. Yeah, he put an EULA on malware. It's like, the, this is, doesn't actually sound that nasty other than these program mechanisms will adversely affect other program applications. That's amazing. Like, here's your terms of service for like having my malware infecting your system. Oh, yeah. Um, so it relied on symmetric encryption. In turn, and it turns out that uh, after some analysis by a guy named Jim Bates, they were able to derive a decryptor tool for it based on the on the virus code itself. Okay. So one of the recurring themes is that your crypto malware doesn't work if we can get the keys for it one way or another. Right, yeah, exactly. And it turns out it took a while to get that one down for us to see regularly malware that had solved that problem. But the solution was posited based on the analysis of this particular piece of malware. Um, in 1996, um, a pair named Young and Young, yeah, there's just a no difference between the two, the two <laughs> names, uh, published an in-depth analysis of full teardown of the binary um, in IEEE's security and privacy. And they wrote a paper for it in there. And in there, they posited what ended up being the solution to the problem, which is using a public-private key cryptography, asymmetric cryptography, uh, so that the private key for the for the encryption side is never exposed. Right. And at some point we're going to get in-depth in cryptography, but I'm going to try not to get too deep into a uh, crypto for for this because we're talking a little bit more about the malware system. Um, I have to, I have to restrain myself. <laughs> so we're actually going to find out in uh, in a couple of examples. We we actually talk about where the first time they tried to use asymmetric cryptography, it didn't quite work out. Hmm. But the next big guy was GP code. It was initially detected in about 2004. There's some dispute about that. Some some sources say 2006, some say 2004. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not sure which to believe, but I put 2004 in my notes. Um, but it was, it was distributed by spear phishing. Um, and part of what I think is important about this is that there was a pretty big gap between the AIDS info disk and GP code. And I think another very important part about crypto malware as we see it now is the ability to distribute it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it turns out really hard to distribute if you're just handing out floppy disks to people. Right. And so the reach of the malware ends up being a big, a very important part of making the, the ransom part viable. Mm -hmm. But I mean, also that distribution is, is what makes a lot of other things viable. Um, other avenues for spear phishing and, and just yeah, yeah. straight phishing and drive-bys and all that fun stuff. Um, but it was spear as a job application and it would run on people's systems and um, it used a fairly trivial encryption scheme. Mm -hmm. But um, the way they monetized it was they had, there was an eagle site and there was a Liberty certificate site. Okay. So you had to go to one of those two and buy certificates with real money and then give them to, to the perpetrator. Oh, I gotcha. And I'm assuming you said it was a job application, so a PDF, like uh, with embedded malware or? Actually, uh, no, it was a, it was P, it was a, it was an executable. It wasn't a very large one. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Oh. Um, one of the references I had specifically said that it was, that it was a small piece of executable code. 
Okay. This is very odd. Like, yeah. here's your job application. Download this uh, exe file and run it for 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 jobs. Don't worry. Yeah. Well, remember this is this is you know mid two thousands. The level of general sophistication about this was lower, and definitely most mail systems didn't pull that stuff out regularly. Or if they if they named it like job application.pdf.exe. Yeah, that's a very common dodge. If you're using Windows, this one a lot of people didn't know to hide or to show file extensions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that's like that's part of the big point is a lot of things that we assume today came out of stuff like this yeah. happening, you know, 15 years ago. This was uh, actually by Russians targeting Russians. It's the it is believed to be uh, sourced by russian organized crime mm. and one of the interesting things about gp code is that it has gone through several iterations and i think the last one i saw observed in my note uh when i was doing the research was 2018 and really? that may still be active um they're iterating and there's significant differences between the first one and huh. one. but they used a trivial encryption scheme which was pretty easy to break on this first version this was, this was symmetric or asymmetric at this time? It was it was symmetric, it was homegrown, and the key length was quite short. Hmm, gotcha. I think two bytes or something like that. Oh, damn. Yeah, so uh, a 16-bit a, a key is, is something that you can kind of work your way through. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the next important signpost was, and mostly because of the failure level of it, is um, Archivus initially detected in 2006, the monetization was that they had people uh, make purchases at specific web, at specific sites of specific goods. Okay. So it's, hey, buy my thing in order to get my overpriced thing to get out. Oh, like, like, hey, I have an Etsy shop, like go buy, go buy all my crap now. Something like that, yeah. Just not not as easily traced. Yeah. The reason why this is an important one to mention is it has kind of the, the greatest of all fails. He used the same encryption key for all infections. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> break it once and you break it forever. Um, and then the last one on what we'll call the early crypto um, malware was GP code AK, which was initially detected in about 2008. Now, this is the first one, at least the first one I could find, that used RSA encryption. They used He used symmetric or asymmetric encryption and it went through the normal process you would do for that. Um, one of the problems with asymmetric encryption for encrypting rather than signing is that the length of what you're encrypting has to be um, the same length as your key or smaller. Right. So what you generally do is you generate a symmetric key encrypt the thing that you want that's usually called an ephemeral key and then you take that key and you encrypt it using your asymmetric system so now you have this blob this this ciphertext blob that if you have the private key you can get the symmetric key to decrypt the file or whatever right this is how secure email works this is how these malware things work the problem was he used the old the algorithm rc4 which is a not one of the government algorithms, the FIPS algorithms, but mm -hmm. also at this point, pretty old. Even at that point, it was pretty old. RC5 was was on its way out even at that point. RC5 was still considered okay, but it was considered fairly weak. Right. Uh, RC4 at the time, it, at, even at the time, was not considered a current algorithm. Um, and because of some of the biases in 
RC4 and some of the implementations uh, uh, that, that they used. If you had enough files for them to figure for them to um, to run crypto analysis against, mm -hmm. some MIT guys actually figured out how to derive the key based on ciphertext, doing a ciphertext analysis. Huh, interesting. So they almost got it right. Right. They did basically the right key management stuff. They used crypto API, Microsoft's crypto API, which means that they used they didn't invent their own crypto. They used crypto that was on the box. Mm -hmm. Also, if you think about um, malware in terms of um, what they call living off the land, which is using parts of what's already available on the system to do various tasks that your malware wants to do instead of bringing along the code yourself, which makes your code smaller right. and makes it harder to detect. Yeah. And especially with crypto API, even back then, just using crypto API isn't that weird. So they almost got it right. And in episode two, we're going to start talking about the really impactful crypto malware because the next one, Crypto Locker, is where they learned all the lessons. That was, that was the, the big one, I think. That I was also like, happened to be at college for cybersecurity when that hit. So like, you know, it was much more prevalent. It's the first big one. There's actually... Um, when it came out in that, that three, four year period, there were several things that hit then that kind of changed the face of things that in that 2012 ish time, which we've had several episodes about things that happened around that time Right, was the time that we really started to see the shift between most malicious stuff being the graffiti artist, um, smashing windows kind of thing mm. versus exploitation for monetization and this might be a spoiler for the episode but crypto locker is the one that hit baltimore right uh i didn't get that far in my research i was still working on the stuff in the 2012 2014 range but stay tuned for a future episode <laughs> because i'll have done the research by then we'll sell that mystery next time dun, dun, dun. um but like i said there are two kinds of malware and there were a few pieces of lockware that happened kind of in the same time frame. Okay. One of the first one that was widely that hit widely enough to really be known was one called a locker. It was initially detected in 2007. Uh, again, it was targeted Russians. Um, mm -hmm. This is why this is part of the reason why I'm, this and some of the previous ones was the reason why the Russian Russian organized crime kind of has a reputation for <laughs> for doing this kind of retail level monetization stuff yeah. and china as we talked about in uh the first episode of the apt files um of doing nation state kind of invasion and i think yeah. the lines have blurred significantly on both of those by this time but especially back then the reputation was the russians are are are, are mobsters and the chinese are are, are military oh, yeah well, I mean, it, it was the early days, so like you only had so many talent points. Mm -hmm. So Russia specked into you know, uh, <laughs> you know, ransomware, and China specked into APT. Now, like you know, ten expansions later, like we got a crap ton of talent points, so you can just spec wherever you want. Yeah, I was just like, it's like, are, are are we at end game now? Like, is is every is every new security technology just a new another dungeon? Uh. Uh, I mean, 2020, 2021, man, it feels like we're in like World of Warcraft expansions where every new one is just the end of the world. 
I I will have to think about that. <laughs> that gives me a fairly disturbing pervert perspective on this. <laughs> <laughs> like your life's work has been boiled down to your life's hobbies. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I feel like <laughs> this is the way things have gone. But <laughs> anyway, so what Locker where uh, what what Locker did uh, was it put porn on your system? Nice and. Uh, the monetization was a call or a text to a toll number. Hmm. And that would give you the key to get the porn room. This is just assuming like this is the like, porn that you didn't like. You're like, eh, I don't like this one. Well, that was actually what struck me. I was like, are Russians bigger prudes than us? Because I don't think that's the rep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Usually all of Europe, I think, and like Eastern Europe, Russia, they're, they're much more open to that. Like, I've seen some of their commercials. Like, <laughs> well, maybe if they considered it porn, it was pretty. It was pretty wild. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Like, but they did not explicitly say that it was child porn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was gonna say, was it like super offensive in some way where you're like, oh crap, like I need to immediately remove this. The references I found to this one didn't say specifically, but I'll mm-hmm. admit that this was not one I dug super into because it wasn't. Yeah, I would also assume other than how early it was. If it was putting child porn in the systems, that would have raised the attention of the authorities like much higher to like try to root them out. That would have been true in the US or anywhere in Europe. I'm less confident that would have been true in Russia. Mm, yeah. Um, not that I say for sure, but I can't say that I recall hearing in any of the stuff that I've read or, or talks that I've gone to about law enforcement. Uh, um, related to the internet, which almost always means child porn or um, mm-hmm. or spam, ha- specifically calling out the Russians for their help. So I just like I never got the impression that that was a high priority for them. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah. but I my personal experience doesn't does not affirm that that notion. Um, <laughs> anyway. So I never got into law enforcement. I didn't want to spend vast hours of my day trying to like drag this stuff out. Uh, well, I got to say, um, the early days of web filtering, uh, I had to validate stuff that was blocked and mm-hmm. do various pulls. Like the when the first network I was on in like 99 or something like that, yeah. went from not having any filtering to having filtering, I had to... Troll, I had to go through some stuff that I wish I had never had to see. Mm, yeah. It was part of the job and it was mm. probably better me than some other folks just because of uh, where they were at in themselves and where I was at. But I wish I had never had to go through any of that. Yeah. I mean, that's like going to 4chan's B board back in the day. There was some stuff you click on. You're like, well, now I'm ruined forever. Yeah, you know, it's just like, yep, that's definitely that. Click. Um, yeah, yeah, like that's ingrained in my brain forever. Fucking Nabokov. Um, <laughs> okay, so in 2012, there was a new kid on the block. Uh, this is around the point in time, again, where we were saying 2012 was where some of this stuff really got systematized. Well, this was one of this was the beginning of one of those systems. Um, it was Citadel was a lockware toolkit. For three, for about three grand, you could buy a toolkit to build a lockware that you could distribute and monetize for yourself. Hmm, okay. The original writers, their monetization was selling the toolkit, not ransoming people. Well, I don't think we know for sure whether they were doing both. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> chances are kind of high. Like, if you have the toolkit, why not have also, you know, the tool on the side? There's Well, there's two reasons. One is exposure, and the other is distribution. Um, we saw, and we'll probably get to this at some point, when carding was really big, um, which I think was in the like the 2007 to 2013-ish time frame. Not that it's small anymore, but the, like, that was the first like major era of carding. Mm -hmm. um, everybody specialized in in a particular stage in the process. Right. That it that the labor wasn't worth um, being vertically integrating everything, becoming a specialist, buying bulk card numbers and doing the validation process and selling that those validated numbers to somebody who was going to straight monetize them was uh -huh. a better deal than trying to do all than trying to do acquisition validation and monetization yeah yeah it makes sense just way too much work and too much overhead yeah well that's the thing it's like how much overhead can you handle yeah, yeah um, and also like what if you just don't have access to that many more victims. Mm, yeah. Let somebody who's better at acquiring or more victims pay you to actually exploit them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, and that's an important point because that's we are seeing that kind of uh, of uh, malware for service model continue into the current age. Mm -hmm. So the I guess the last piece of lockware we're really talking about is Liposit Reviton. Uh, which was also detected in 2012. Um, and what it would do, this is the one that does that did a splash screen that basically blocked off your ability to interact with your system. Uh -huh. And it claimed to be the FBI or the Department of Justice. And it said you're being fined because uh, you have child porn or car paper rated material on your system. I think I've seen pictures of this. I actually cleaned this up on a couple of people's systems. Okay, yeah. Like, I think I've definitely <laughs> seen just like screen grabs of like something yeah. like this. You very, you very well may have that that hit quite a lot of people. Um, so, funny thing about this is, um, like for for NASA operations, um, you know, there, there is a security mandate of uh, activity uh, timeouts and lockouts of systems after 15 minutes. You know, your system should lock out, go to screensaver, like you know, go back to the login page or something like that. Then mm -hmm. you know we're mandated to file that. However, we we run operations 24 seven, and you know there's a a lot of computers in the, the mission operations center sometimes, and you want to see what data is being generated from the spacecraft, mm -hmm. but you don't necessarily want to have to like, log in. You also want to just be able to like, just glance at it, see if there's an error. So what some people did was they actually wrote a program that's uh, like transparent screen lock, <laughs> where you know you can see everything going on in the terminals behind, and then if you wiggle your mouse, you get like a little, it activates uh, the GNOME unlocker. And now I'm like, did they use some of this code no 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 they didn't it was um my experience with it was essentially it presented a window with a jpeg image it, it grabbed the size of your resolution oh okay <laughs> it is, it's kind of like the, the the prank where you you take a screenshot of the person's desktop and then you put that as a yes, paper it, it is almost exactly that oh, okay okay it's gotcha, that they gotcha. automated it um i know that I was able to clean those things up with just a um, a disk or a thumb drive with the sys internals tools and a little bit of uh, knowledge of the key of the keyboard shortcuts of Windows. Gotcha. Okay. okay. I'm not certain, but I'm pretty sure it had some of the normal virus persistent stuff, like having two threads going with the same executable. So if you kill one, the other one will start up. 
Right. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that's a relatively easy thing to to solve using Process Explorer. Sysinternals is is owned by and uh, available from Microsoft for for those listeners who aren't familiar. Process Explorer is one of the tools. And if yeah. you run into this situation, if you suspend the processes that restart one another before you kill them, they won't be able to restart one another. Just a quick tip. It is an amazing it, tool. It like, really is. Uh, if you've never used it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can go a really long way into understanding the guts of Windows just by fiddling with those tools. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so those are all of kind of the, the early years of ransomware. And to recap some of the stuff that we said earlier, Ransomware needs to be a credible threat. It needs to make somebody want to go, oh God, I need to take care of this. Mm -hmm. It needs to be paid in an untraceable way. Recovery has to be credible. Yeah. The victim has to believe that they can recover things. Yeah. You got, you got to have some, some clout and some credibility. Yep. That you've unlocked things in the past. Like, you're not a good kidnapper if you murder all your victims because then no one's going to pay you. Exactly. And uh, that one is foreshadowing for some, something that comes up in the next episode. <laughs> um, but also, we talked a little bit about crypto malware and using that asymmetric cryptography and having different, key, uh, different keys on each system that you infected and having some way of organizing and decrypting that. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that, well, I mean, turns out is maybe not the way to put it, but Doing that on the malware side takes a little bit of care, but it's not that complicated to do. There's examples all over the place. Mm -hmm. The part that actually takes some thought and consideration and creating an infrastructure for is keeping track of all of those things. Right, yeah. Um, some of the ways that some of the, the, that some of the early ones did it was they gave you the, encrypt, the encryption string, the, the ciphertext, and that you were supposed to provide to the um, to the perpetrator so that they could decrypt the key and make that happen. Okay. Um, nowadays, those things are entirely web-based, and there's no human inter interaction required um, for some for for some of the more advanced crypto malware. But part of what needed to happen there wasn't just hey, do I have a crypto malware and do I have a way of getting payments, but also an infrastructure that operated 24 seven and could keep everything organized. Because yeah. if, if you don't have that, then the whole credible recovery thing starts to go out the window. Yeah, like if, if you're, you know, propagating this across the globe, you don't have a 24 hour tech, tech line. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, the Black Hat talk that got me kind of started looking at some of this stuff more than a few years ago, talked a lot about that infrastructure and how the, mal the crypto malware, and they were talking about uh, crypto locker. We'll probably talk a little bit about that uh, talk in the next episode about ransomware. Um, was that they are starting to act like an actual tech support firm because customer satisfaction was an important part of their game. <laughs> yeah, like we we know you we've screwed you on your information other thing, but like we're not that but bad. We only meant to screw you so much because yeah, yeah, yeah. if you kill the sheep, you can't skin it again. Yep, exactly. Anyway, so that's part one of ransomware. Yes. Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. 
Follow Hack the Gibbs 1 on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.